Slovenly trolls, slovenly trolls, we're big, bad, evil girls. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Slovenly Trolls podcast. I am your host with the most, and definitely the one with the ego, Lissa, with my co-host, who is... Charday, yes, thank you for giving me my own introduction, so I didn't have to do as much work. You're welcome. Yay. <laughs> That's what I'm here Very for. Very much appreciated. Friendship. Friendship. Frenemies. <laughs> Frenemieship. Frenemieship. So, what is this episode going to be about? We are going to be talking about a Dragon Magazine article called Notes on Women and Magic. Bringing the Die Staff Gamer into D&D, which has been shared with us by Stefan Huddleston, aka at Umbral underscore Night X on Twitter. So thank you very much, Charday. You were the one who received this article. What would you like to say about it? I was. I would like to say you guys are all in for a treat if you do not know what this article is about. And if you do know what this article is about, buckle up buttercup because we're gonna get into it (laughs) and if you can't tell if you can't tell by my voice um yeah there's just there's a lot in it and we're excited but also terrified to talk about it especially since I thought it was very relevant to today's um how do I word this lately social climate (laughs) social climate there you go As an explanation, if you do not know what we are talking about, we will be going into the history of women's autonomy and doing a little bit of context on who the fuck wrote this shit, which you will find out (laughs) what this shit is later in the episode. So before that, we do have our very lovely Patreon shout outs, our favorite people, our people who sponsor us. Kim Winson, Becca Malama, Matt Dunn, Scott Williams, Tony Lehtinen, Ryan Sheldon, Freen, Russ Luzetsky, Antonia Kestner, Nathan Wilson, Dread Ninja, Chrissy Bay, aka Fireboy, Dungeon Daddy Rick of Hammer of the Gods, Jordan McLanson, and Nick Andrewson. Thank you! And for our very, very special producer tier super special shout out, we have not one, but two names Chantrell Avery and Jeremy Raymond. Producer, tear, and for our more somber note, we do have the following content warnings for this episode. So we will be talking about the following topics: Roe versus Wade, women's autonomy, SA, racism, suicide, and ableism. So if any of the above that I just listed are something that you are not comfortable listening to or talking about or hearing talked about, please do skip this episode and we will see you on another episode that we do not yet know what the topic is for. That's the mystery. It's a mystery. So follow us on social media, I guess, and stay tuned (laughs) to find out. Stay tuned to find out. (laughs) Stay tuned on the next episode of the Slovenly Trolls podcast. (laughs) But for now, we get to talk about super fun stuff about women's autonomy. Yay. Yay! And just as a final disclaimer, in part two, when we discuss Roe v. Wade, we may use some gendered language that was used at the time for the purpose of historical accuracy and how the trial was covered in the 70s. 
we here at the Slovenly Trolls know that reproductive rights affect anyone with a uterus, not just women. Reproductive rights are human rights. Now, let's get into it. So let's go to part one. What is this trash? Who wrote it and why? Part one. What is this trash? Who wrote it and why? So we've talked about Dragon Magazine on this podcast, uh, I would say quite a few times on different episodes. And we've used it as a source before. For example, I think we used it on the art episode, our second one. We, it was part of our Sexy Goddesses of the Forgotten Realms, I think part one and two. And also on our Dragon Boobs episode. Actually, I found out <laughs> new information about Dragon Magazine. So... Because I, we've used it before and I was like, wait, have we ever actually talked about what Dragon Magazine is? So I kind of did a little TLDR research on what it actually is because I never actually looked this up. So Dragon <laughs> Magazine is one of the two original magazines that was published by Gary Gygax as a bi-monthly source of material for D&D. So he would usually get people to publish articles and or stats for D&D that he would publish through Dragon Magazine and that he then sometimes ended up putting into some of his new books that he published, which is I thought was kind of a cool thing. There's actually another bi-monthly magazine that he had, which was called Dungeon because, you know, Dungeon Magazine and Dragon Magazine. Wow. Ha, 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 so clever. So clever. Anyway, the particular dra- Dragon Magazine that we will be talking about in this episode is the October 1976, number three. And we are looking at the pages between 7 and 10. So we're looking at a specific article that is four pages long, and I've called it Four Pages of Trash that tries to pretend it's, quote, inclusive of women. And that's my uh, description of the article for you. It is a detailed guide on how to bring women into D&D, how to give them their own classes. Well, it gives them their own classes. It gives them their own stats. And it gives them their own spells. That doesn't sound too bad, right? Wrong. You are wrong. They are wrong. In reality, (laughs) it gives women a beauty score. It gives names to different classes and levels of women because, as we know, cis white middle-aged men naming things and naming women always ends up real well. And putting a strength cap on women, you know, is a great thing that we love on this podcast. And there are some great bad jokes in Grabber that, I'm not gonna lie, we'll get into in part three. So, Lissa, I'm getting the impression that you don't like this article very much. (laughs) Can you confirm or deny this? What gave that away? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it was the tone. Maybe it's the sound of your voice yelling in my ear through our headphones. (laughs) (laughs) Is it the heavy sarcasm in my voice? No, not that. No, No, I just think it's something else. (laughs) No, not that. Not that. Anyway. Continue. Who who wrote this? Who wrote this? How many pages did you say it was? Four. Four pages of trash. Yes. Four pages of trash. Who wrote these four pages of trash? We look to a man called Len 
Lakofka. Now, if you are a fan of Dragon Magazine, or an, if you read Dragon Magazine back in the day, you may recognize him as being the writer of... Uh, of being a writer of a column within Dragon Magazine called Liaman's Tiny Hut, which he... Whoa, 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 Wait, really? Yeah, yeah, that's Len Lakofka. Oh, god damn it. I'm so... <laughs> I didn't know he had anything to do with Liaman's Tiny Hut. Yeah, he's the, he's the original... He's the original columnist for Liaman's Tiny Hut. This is the same man who wrote Liaman's Tiny what? Hut. For those who don't know, Liaman's Tiny Hut is also a spell in Dungeons and Dragons. I think it's like a third level spell. It's basically Mordenkainen's Magnificent Mansion, but tinier. Oh, it's a little hut. Interesting. The more you know. The more you know. Well, now I'm, I'm in, okay, I'll put that in the good category. You know what? That's a good spell. <laughs> you know what? That's a good spell. Good job, Len Lakofka. I'll, gi- I'll give him that credit. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. I had to like, that That was a revelation for me. I was just possessed. Can, keep going. <laughs> so his real name is Leonard W. Lakofka, and he was a writer of D&D and a close friend of Gary Gygax. He was originally started off as a war gamer, and he specifically played Avalon Hill's game called Diplomacy. And he was part of the same group of war gamers with Gary Gygax called IFW, so the International Federation of War Gamers. He joined it when Gary was the vice president of the group. And he was there, they became friends, and they eventually then used I or got the help of IFW to organize Gen Con, the original Gen Con number one. And Lakofka, I believe, was also there to organize one of the Gen Cons. I think Gen Con number two by himself, if I'm not mistaken. And he is known as being one of the original playtesters for D&D as it was being developed. Because he was a friend with Gary Gygax. They were really good buddies. And he was also an editor of the original AD&D Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide for first edition. Not only that, but he also wrote a couple AD&D adventure modules, which were the L series. There are three for the L series called The Secret of Bone Hill, The Assassin's Knot, and Deep Dwarven Dwelve. He's also known for his namesake of the character Leomund, which I don't know that much about AD&D, but... I think we do have some listeners who might know about that. Well, Liamund, I'm assuming, I don't know much about him either, but if he has anything to do with the spell Liamund's Tiny Hut, I'm assuming he's a pretty powerful caster like Mordenkainen, just from context clues. Uh, probably, yeah. That's my guess. He also had, he, or he rather, he designed a setting, a fantasy game setting called Lendor Isles, which Gygax added to his original Greyhawk campaign. So that's what he is known for in the D&D world. And he's kind of looked up to as a creator and like an original playtester. And one of the original, like, he wasn't technically part of TSR, but he was part of TSR in that he was in the original creator's circle of people who were making a D&D. And fun fact about Lakofka... He was what was called a high-profile player in the D&D world. 
And you might be thinking, what the fuck does that mean, Lissa? Because I was very confused when I read that sentence and I'm like, wait a minute. That, what does a high profile player, when you're talking about the 1980s, what does that mean? So I looked it up. So apparently there was this rating and ranking score that was organized by TSR when TSR became a thing and a company where they made invitational AD&D Masters tournaments that began in March 1980 where they ranked players who attended events like events like Gen Con and they created these tournaments and people would play in them and they would have people who gave them points based on how they played and how well they did. And yeah, so he did really well because he was the sixth ranked player in the national D&D standings in 1980. Not only as a player, but in 1980, he was also the third as a DM in the Invitational Dungeon Masters tournament at Gen Con. And I do have some hashtag stats for those of you who want to know more about this. Yes. So in Dragon Magazine number 35, the March issue from 1980, there is a list of uh, all of the contestants who took part in this competition or this tournament, or in rather who were placed in the ratings. I wanted to know, because the feminist in me was like, how many women, how many women could we find at this tournament and in these ratings? So I, I counted the number of women. Shardy, would, would you like to guess how many women there were in the 68 contestants that were listed in the player ratings? Not a lot, because usually <laughs> that's how these stats go, but my guess would be under 10. You are correct. So out of <laughs> 68 contestants, there were four women. We hmm. have Christine Bailey, Kathy Bullinger, Sharon Bloom, who you may recognize the last name of if you know anything about TSR history and the Bloom brothers, and Jean Wells, who we have talked about before on this podcast. We love Jean Wells. Yeah, we love Jean Wells. So if you take out Sharon Bloom and Jean Wells, who we know of, we have two people, two women, who didn't work for TSR and were not part of the Bloom brothers who took over. So that's 5.9% of women. So that means it was a 94.1% of a sausage fest. Oh. I mean, not surprising, unfortunately. But every time we come, like, we find stats that just confirms what we already know, it's just like, uh, well, I don't want to be right. But um, <laughs> also... I know you don't want to like spend too much time on this because I'm sure we could go on and on about what the fuck does a D&D tournament look like. Mm -hmm. I just want to pose a question. Like I'm curious if there is a D&D tournament today, would how would re how would they rank that? Because nobody really plays D&D as like a competition anymore. I don't think there's an answer for it. I'm just curious. And also, how would we rank? Would we be number one or would we be number 172? Because <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I don't follow rules too well. So I feel like I would not. Same. <laughs> I would not rank too well on this if it were based on like, how well do you check for traps? How well do you kill the monster? How yeah? How, how maximized is your character with equipment and 
stats. Mm-hmm. I play for escapism. I don't play for max stats. And there are people who play that way. Like, I know people who would probably excel at this. Mm-hmm. Like, if you remember this rule and if you, you know, pass an encounter with a certain score or something. Like, I know people who would do really well with that. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would do very well because, like you, I don't fall. I use them as guidelines, mm-hmm. not actual rules, as a player and a DM. So mm-hmm. I don't know if this would work. I mean, I'm sure somebody could make it work but I guess we also have Magic of the Gathering now which is kind of tied to the Forgotten Realms and with Wizards of the Coast Mm -hmm. so is that the modern day equivalent do we think or no um I don't know that much about Magic the Gathering that I'd be able to answer that question for you yeah I don't know much either (laughs) maybe our audience knows maybe listeners if you have any idea what the modern equivalent of a D&D tournament would be. Let us know because I know I'm hella curious. Anyway, on that side note that veered off the topic quite fast, I am not shocked at, but still, let's really break into <laughs> what our original context is. So we're looking at who wrote the article that we are going to talk about. The four pages of trash, as I so eloquently put it. We're talking about the magazine, the number three magazine of Dragon Magazine. The number three, num- the third Dragon Magazine. Yeah, you got there eventually. <laughs> I got there. So let's look at the rest of the magazine. So forgetting the four pages of trash, what other context clues can we find about the rest of the magazine? So we have the editor is a familiar face. We have talked about him on this podcast before. His name is Tim Kask. He wrote the foreword and he signed off on the content that was put in the magazine. You may recognize his name from our episode on Elise Gygax, our seventh episode called Coy Looks and Selling Books, in which he is mentioned as uh, posting the Where the Action Is advertisement that featured Elise on Facebook and he, where he wrote the following comment. I won't tell you how young she was then, dot, dot, dot. You'd have to take a shower, lol. Still as gross now as it was when we first found it. Yep. (laughs) Still makes me feel things, not good things. No, makes me feel icky. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, that was Tim Cask for you. Other articles that were featured in this magazine include the article before you get to the women's one that we're talking about. You have an article written by Gary Gygax himself where Gary reminisces on wargaming where the slogan is literally titled, Does Anyone Remember? Back in my day. Back in my day. (laughs) Wargaming. Same energy. It's the same Mm -hmm. picture. Same picture. We then have the women's article for four pages, you know, the trash, as we have called it, uh, which is followed by an adventure story about a handsome cis white guy who is naive but amongst cutthroats and he's going on this big adventure and it features a buxom wench who serves him drinks at a tavern. And there's a picture of her. We love ourselves some buxom wenches. We do. We do love a good buxom wench. Mm -hmm. Then we have something called the birth tables of D&D. And I know Shardae had a visceral reaction to the name birth tables. I did because, okay, 
Listen, listen, it's in the rhetoric, okay? When you when somebody says birth table, posing the question to our listeners, what the fuck is the first thing you think? What do you think of when you hear birth tables? Take a minute. It's not what you think, because when Lissa explained it to me, I'm like, well, I guess that makes sense, but real bad name, and I'm not backing down on that, because again, rhetoric is important, and you should name something that, you know, once you see the name, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But this, there are better names for it, so tell us what it actually means, because it's not tables for... People giving birth and how to give birth in D&D, <laughs> because that's where my mind went real quick. So I'll give you a context clue. The description goes, we have come up with the following birth tables to aid the DM in rolling up new characters for a campaign. You see, that still sounds like giving birth, because isn't a baby a new character? <laughs> They're NPC tables, you guys. There's NPC <laughs> tables, Okay. So you roll for social class, you roll for siblings, you roll for social rank, you roll for your father's occupation, because obviously your father has an occupation and that's very important, but your mother does not. Or if she does, it's not important. Obviously. Nobody cares. And yeah. also, don't forget, your character has a race. And also, one of the races includes Hobbit, because this was before it was changed. Mm -hmm. To Halfling. To Halfling, yes. Which is, this is followed by letters to the publication and their answers to letters and features some new subclasses, which also have some very interesting choices that I will talk about briefly, very briefly. So we have a subclass for samurai or, or a subclass for fighter called samurai, which I'm pretty sure is orientalism, just plain outright orientalism, features seppuku which, if you do not know, is unaliving oneself in the traditional Japanese way. And one of the reasons you may do so as a character in AD&D is because you lost your sword. And, yeah, that's just that. Uh-huh. Because that makes sense. Because as in seppuku, you need to use a sword in order to do the unaliving? Yeah. Interesting. All right. Sure. Sure. This is followed by another subclass of fighter called a berserker. And I oh. at first thought reading that, that it would be the first link to a barbarian berserker, but no, it is a berserker, but make it lycanthrope. Because as a yeah. berserker, you shift to a different form, including were rats, were bears, were tigers, or a werewolf. Which is, I thought was really hella cool. Like, I would love to do that. That does sound hella cool. Uh, there's also a Jester class, which is not a... It, it, it looks like its own class. It's not a subclass of anything, but it can double as a... You can double as a thief, apparently, as a Jester. And I'm wondering if it is the first mention of bards or first introduction of bards into the AD&D. I'm not sure. We would have to look into that. It has weird caps based on races. So as a hobbit, you can only get to max 10th level as a jester. As an elf, you can max at 6 as a village idiot. Or it's called village <laughs> idiot. As a man, you can only become max level 5, which is called a fool. And other races, you can become max level 4, which is called a comic. 
So you do things like throwing dirty underwear at people, swinging pillows at people. You have acid squirting flowers on your shirt and you swing around or throw smelly socks at people. Which I think is kind of funny. But then it gets weird. Because the next one is the, like, a, a very, how to say, it's, it's not a player subclass, it's an NPC subclass. It's called the Idiot, which, it looks fine, but then you read into it. So you can't become a village imp idiot, but you can buy one. And essentially it gives you buffs. Now it costs 160 GP, or gold pieces. But you know what gives you even better buffs? than owning an idiot. If you buy, additionally to the idiot, you buy a midget for an extra 200 gold pieces. You get 5% better stats for the purpose of the idiot, which is to apparently confuse the enemy so that it will either run away, attack a wall, commit harikari, which is another word for seppuku, which is unaliving oneself, or it will eat all of its treasure or some related act so that it will not attack the troop. So you essentially confuse the enemy so much that it does one of the five things that I just read out, and it does those things for three turns. So let me get this straight. And I didn't read the article, so I guess it's more of a clarification question. You were buying an NPC... So buying a person, so that would constitute as slavery, right? Because you're not paying them. You're just paying for their body to use as a stat boost. Yeah. I, and then they give you buffs. It, it wasn't clear. Like, I think, like, you might be renting the idiot, but it's a one-time payment of 160 gold pieces. But then it says, but then it says you buy, a, you can buy a midget for 200 gold pieces. So... That is, I would say, is is just slavery. It's downright slavery. That is just, it's just wrong on so many levels because midgets, so which now problems. the term. There's so many layers and so many problems. And I don't see how nobody saw that as a problem. Well, he, I, I do because it was the 70s and it was still socially acceptable to call little people midgets, which now it's not acceptable to do that anymore. That's not the correct terminology that yeah. those people like to be referred to as. From what I understand, the term is little people, yeah. but back then, people called them worse than that. I think there was a time where people would just call them dwarfs because the condition is called dwarfism for some of them. So it's not surprising to me that they used the word midget because back then, people, that's just what they were called they didn't give a shit what the actual people themselves thought about the term. Mm -hmm. But because little people have been so discriminated against and have so many prejudices against them throughout history, like being seen as circus freaks, mm -hmm. et cetera, at the time, it's not super surprising that they turned that into a mechanic. And it's, but it, it's obviously not an excuse for it. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. Like slavery in any form. And it's, they're, they're a plot device. Yes. There's literally a plot device that gives you a 5% boost in stats. Even worse than plot, it's a mechanical advantage. Like it's not, there's no plot reason to have slavery. You can no. write slavery out of most D&D &D plots and you'll be just fine unless you have a table that is 
they really want to tackle that subject, in which case, if everybody's cool with it, you're not hurting anybody, totally fine. But at this point, writing it as a mechanic in Dragon Magazine, which was an official publication of TSR, yeah. you're kind of putting a stamp on it. And yeah, that's that's a bunch of... We don't have enough time to get into it, obviously, today, but that's gross and definitely like... I think all the stuff you've been talking about really goes to show that the article we're talking about now, you know, Notes on Women and Magic, it wasn't, it is egregious. It is an egregious article. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into it more in part three. But it wasn't the only egregious thing. It was definitely not. Dragon Magazine. The only egregious thing. And mm-hmm. that's why I kind of did this context analysis of yeah. what the rest of the magazine had in store because it was not just a one off, oh, four pages of trash about let's bring women into D&D while not actually bringing women into D&D because it also had other problems, including, you know, what I just listed out and what we just talked about. Yeah. To encompass, I guess, what I've been talking about with the article. So the context of what is this trash, who wrote it, and why, there are a few good things that we can say about Lakafka. So the benefit of the doubt, Lakovka was said to have thought that AD&D was unbalanced and he tried to help out as best he could to help out with Gygax in order to balance it out. He worked on, you know, AD&D and he published Leomund's Tiny Hut column and he was like an influential figure of D&D and how one of the reasons that D&D is what it is today. He, so he worked on spells, he worked on campaign settings, he edited and added things to the game that we play with today. So he was an influential player of D&D. And he did actually publish two additional L modules for free on dragonsfoot.com, which I believe one of them had up to 34,000 downloads. So he is like an influential person in the D&D world. Benefit of the doubt, he did things for D&D. And from what I can tell, may not have been paid for some of it because he wasn't actually employed by TSR. I don't know how much he was paid for it, but he did things like substantial things for D&D to make it a better game. I think that can be said. I mean, you can... You can still see, you can literally still see it today in fifth edition where Liamon's Tiny Hut, the spell, is still in D&D. Like his influence still permeates even today in fifth edition, which mm-hmm. that can't be. That's not for a bad reason. Like he did some good things. He helped, especially in the early years, he helped make D&D what it was. He played his part and got to give credit where credit is due. But what about the bad things, Lissa? <laughs> What about what about the bad things, though? Well, some could say that AD&D is still unbalanced in ways that they cannot even see because it was made by cis white men who came from certain backgrounds and only looked at it through certain lenses of their own, uh, their own lenses and their own perspectives. So to not attack, to attack them out front... They came from their backgrounds with their viewpoints and their perspectives and they tried to balance it out. But I would still say that AD&D is, from what I have heard, I have not played it myself, it is still quite unbalanced. Mm -hmm. 
And also, the bad things about it, he's, he wrote the shit that we are still going to talk about in yeah. the following sections, in our part two and part three. And especially in part three, where we analyze the shit out of what the fuck they wrote about. <laughs> Um, as for why did they do the things that they did? Why did he write this? Why was it published? Why did they think that it was necessary to write this article? I don't have an answer for you. I wrote down the caucasity of white men. I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. I also have stuff to add to it, but it's more in part two. So I think... On top of, like you said, their own backgrounds and their own privileges, there was also stuff going going on in the 70s specifically, like a lot of stuff going on in the 70s that may or may not have also played a part in it. Not necessarily like influencing like, oh, all this stuff is going around and now we're going to write about it, but more so just subconsciously mm -hmm. in the background that just kind of came with living in that time period, mm -hmm. which is just the 1970s in America, full stop. I did look at Dragon Magazine number two because I was interested in why, why this? Why now? Why, or why then? Why that specific issue? Why that article and that specific issue? And I did look at Dragon Magazine number two, which was the previous issue of Dragon Magazine. And they did say in the foreword, Tim Cass did talk about the sudden increase in interest, the sudden increase in interest in fantasy gaming in the past year. So could that have included feedback about including women in fantasy gaming? I mean, based on the stats of how many women were in the chart that we looked at with the five point, almost 6% of women being in 68 participants in like that tournament and ranked in that tournament that still doesn't go to show that there was an interest of women in D&D &D, even if there was a, an increase in interest in fantasy gaming itself I still don't know if that included women so yeah that's just my musings to end my part, which is part one, before we go into some additional context from Chardet. Big, big, big brain context. Big not really big context. brain, just like, <laughs> not really big brain. That's giving me too much credit. Um, wider context. Mm -hmm. world, <laughs> wider context. World encompassing outside of D&D &D issues context. Yeah, there you go. Historical context, one might say. Yeah. Yeah. So without further ado, part two. Roll for Romance is a 5e actual play D&D podcast featuring five friends thirsty for D20. If you're a fan of body jokes, ribald one-liners, and heaps of romance. Romance in my D&D? Why, I never... Why in my day we played Dungeons and Dragons the good old-fashioned way? No need for aphrodisiacs. From sexy shenanigans to star-crossed lovers, each episode is ribbed for your oral pleasure. I think I've got the vapors. Oh, oh my. Here's an out-of-context sneak peek. Damn it, Melace. Chadley's a squirrel, not a doctor. Madam, I take out the trash, not pleasure it. Are you gonna finally kiss me, sugar? 
Or do I have to lie to my diary again? I'll probably waste away from some tragic disease. <laughs> Roll for Romance, where every NPC has a plus five to sexy. Episodes are published every other Thursday. Find us on your favorite podcast platforms. Part two, historical context, a.k.a. politics. So much fun. So um, in this section, we are going to be talking about what was going on around the time that Notes on Women and Magic was written. So Lissa gave a very detailed context of what was going on in the magazine, but I thought it was also important to talk about what was going on at the time that this was written, to not only give the benefit of the doubt, because, you know, certain worldviews were different at different parts in history, and it's easy to, to understand how things came about when you understand when they came about, but also to perhaps offer another hypothesis as to why this article was written and why certain things were written how they were written. That was words. Um, hopefully that made sense. <laughs> that made sense, yeah. Yeah, that made sense. So let's get political, uh, but not really. So <laughs> it's, it's political, political, political. Let's get into political. Let's get political. Let's get into politics. Um, <laughs> so... I posed a question, well, Lisa and I both posed questions on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, asking those of you who followed us, what political events do you most associate with the 1970s? And the answers were pretty varied, which is good, because not just one thing was going on in this decade, and I wanted to you know, remind people of that, even though I'm going to be focusing on a very specific part of this decade, which if you know anything about our podcast, you can probably have a guess before I even say what the fuck it is I'm going to be talking about. For Twitter and Instagram, people named events like the Iranian hostage crisis. There was big gas shortage going on at this time. The Vietnam War was ending. The bicentennial was happening in the U.S. Nixon's resignation Watergate, which was, I think, the top answer that people put down. I'm not going to be talking about Watergate. That's another episode. <laughs> I don't know what episode. But uh, yeah. Lisa, do you know what Watergate is? <laughs> I feel like I should. And I feel like I have been told what it is. <laughs> has, it, has it been information that my brain thought, that's really relevant. And we'll store this in a very easy to access place in my brain hole. No, yeah, no. It, that that was not pertinent information in my brain. So it's been wiped into the very back existence somewhere, maybe in the mm -hmm. dumpster that is my brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's fair enough. Also, you haven't really spent any time in America, so why would you know what Watergate is? <laughs> really? Yeah. Also, that it's a big American political event, and um, I focused. You could obviously see a theme here. This is more what was happening in America in the 1970s because mm -hmm. TSR and all the people who are working on D&D &D are from America. So they were more exposed to American stuff that was happening. Mm -hmm. But back to the Twitter and Instagram responses. The last thing that people pointed out hit the nail right on the head of what we're going to be talking about. And that is women's rights. 
Woo! AKA Women's Liberation and Roe v. Wade were very popular responses. And yeah, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in this section. So so where a lot of the content warnings come in because we are recording this after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court in the United States. So we understand if this is a very sensitive topic for a lot of people. It's definitely close to home for me because I'm currently living in the States. It's close to anyone who wants access to reproductive rights. So if you're not cool with us talking about it, you don't want to hear it, that's totally okay. You could just skip to part three if you want. Totally understandable. But I thought it was important to talk about because it was a major event in the 70s, and it went along with a lot of women's liberation and just women getting rights in the 1970s. And I thought the juxtaposition of that with this article was really interesting, and I really wanted to talk about it, plus any excuse to talk about history and use my history minor. Um, <laughs> so let's start out this section with a, just a timeline. Why the fuck am I talking about Roe v. Wade and women's liberation in the 1970s? So let's go date by date in this little timeline that I came up with. So starting in 1972, that's kind of when feminism and women's rights really started to pick up heat in this decade. So on March 22nd, 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment was passed in Congress. So that's an event I'll be talking about in a little bit more depth. After that, just a couple of months on June 23rd, 1972, Title IX of the Higher Education Act was passed by Congress, which I won't be going into detail of, but if you do not know what that is, a brief explanation is that Title IX prohibited discrimination on the basis of sex in any educational program receiving federal funds, and it forced all male schools to open their doors to women and athletic programs to sponsor and finance female sports teams. So big deal. Mm -hmm. Big deal for women wanting to get a higher education. Yeah. Uh, January 22nd, 1973, so a little less than a year after that, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton were in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed with the arguments and gave women the right to an abortion and took that away from the states and made it a federal regulation. I'll be talking more in depth about that because obviously that's a big topic right now. And I think had has the most relevance and stood the most like this. These rulings have stood the test of time in the consciousness of people who are aware of historical and political history. And then in 1974, the Equal Credit Opportunities Act was passed. So this was the year after Roe v. Wade. And I won't be going into depth with this one, but TLDR, the Equal Credit Opportunities Act, is when women could finally apply for and have credit cards without needing their husband's approval in the United States. Wow. Yeah. 1974. Okay. Yeah. And two years after that, that's when the article was published, 1976. <laughs> so you see why I wanted to talk yeah, about history. Yeah, There's a lot yeah, of yeah. shit. We are linked to D&D. <laughs> <laughs> are linked to why am I talking about women's history and women's rights it's because it from 1972 to 1974 there were just so many things going on with women getting more rights that they'd never had before and again the juxtaposition of women gaining autonomy and gaining rights put up against this article that was 
in my opinion, sexist and <laughs> awful and stripping away women's choices when it came to playing a game, I just thought it was an interesting angle to approach it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But yeah, but yeah. So this, to kind of summarize this era, it's second wave feminism. Second wave feminism was happening in the late 1960s through the 1970s. And it's now... This era is also colloquially known as just the the fight for women's autonomy, the fight for women to be independent in school, financially, and through a bunch of other decisions to have choices on what they could do with their lives. Mm -hmm. Let's get into it, shall we? Uh, Take a deep breath, get some water. Let's talk about the Equal Rights Amendment and Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, because I think those two specifically are the most relevant and the events that people look back on the most during this movement. So before we get into those, just a quick, what is autonomy? Because some people might not know. And I found this definition by Rhoda E. Howard Hassman, who was a Canadian social scientist uh, who specializes in international human rights. She defines autonomy in two ways. The first way is an individual's legal and practical capacity to make an act upon her own life choices. And the second, which I thought was a lot more visceral and definition that stuck with me ever since I read it, was the autonomous woman is, or maybe as she sees fit, an actor, not merely a person acted upon. Mm -hmm. So making the choices by herself. Exactly. Nobody is making choices for her. Mm-hmm. So in D&D terms, I guess, to tie it back to D&D and to have an example, it's like women being the player character and making choices and having the consequences of their actions versus a non-playable character just kind of being around in the background, you know, and mm-hmm. having – not really having much of a choice, just kind of being there and doing what they do. Not the best analogy, but it it's some sort of a connection, right? It's mm-hmm. having the ability to act and having the freedom to yeah. act. The first thing we will talk about is the Equal Rights Amendment because surprisingly, not a lot of people know what this is. And I didn't really know what this is, what this was until a couple of years ago because this happened during the 70s and – it unfortunately does not have a very happy ending, spoiler alert. The Equal Rights Amendment is the legal equality of the sexes and prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex. So very similar to Title IX, but instead of just being about schools, it's about you just not being able to discriminate against anybody regardless of their sex. So very important. And as in the title, this is an amendment. So, which means it's an amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Lissa, do you know what an amendment to the Constitution of the United States means as somebody who has never been here? Um, The Constitution is, from what I gather, a document of some sort that dictates your laws? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean... Basically, yeah, the Constitution is this 200-year-old document that the legal system uses to rule on cases. Right. So it, it cements a bunch of people's rights into this document. 
And because it was written 200 years ago, there's a lot of shit in here or a lot of shit in there that isn't said because 200 years, I don't know if you know this, it's a long time ago. A lot of people really? didn't have rights 200 wow. years ago. <laughs> I know. So there are these things called amendments that are usually made to protect civil rights because mm -hmm. the Constitution did not do that because it was written by uh, middle-aged and older white men mm -hmm. who founded this country and stole it from the Native Americans. <laughs> Shocking. Shocking. I'm shocked. So an amendment is, if you want the actual definition, it is just referred to as an addition or an alteration. And we're just talking about that in the context of the Constitution. But it can also, amendments can be made to basically any statute, bill, resolution, any lawmaking document. You can have an amendment and be like, hey, this isn't relevant anymore. Or, hey, this is a bit sexist. This is a bit racist. This is a bit not cool. Mm -hmm. Let's put an amendment in it to make it better because people evolve and you need to do that. So that's what the Equal Rights Amendment wanted to do. It wanted to amend the Constitution. It wanted to make it illegal for people to discriminate on anyone on the basis of sex. So it could technically it, – it would give women more rights because women are a sex that is not given as many rights as men because, again, the country was founded by men. But it also – this would technically also benefit men too because you couldn't discriminate against a man for being a man. So it was really for everybody. And it was actually quite a popular amendment. Not a lot of people had problems with it for a while. Fun fact. So, I mean, <laughs> I say fun. But an amendment is usually what people mean when they want to codify something in the United States. So if any of our listeners outside of the U.S. have been paying attention to all the stuff happening with Roe v. Wade now, there are a lot of calls to codify Roe v. Wade and to make it like a law. That usually means making it an amendment to the Constitution so that nobody can touch it. If you put right. something in the Constitution, it's almost impossible to repeal. One of the only times that's ever happened is with Prohibition, <laughs> which outlawed alcohol. So obviously that didn't go very well. <laughs> so... Background on the Equal Rights Amendment. So it was first proposed in 1923 by a suffragette and political strategist named Alice Paul. And then it was reintroduced into Congress to make it an amendment right after the revival of feminism in the late 1960s. So people started talking about it. And the 1960s was the start of second wave feminism, for those who don't know. So that's when the feminist mystique was published. That's when Title VII came around to the Education Act, which prohibited, prohibited, <clears throat> prohibited discrimination in employment on the basis of gender. And civil rights just were happening in the 60s, full stop. People were starting to realize how many groups of people, or not really realize, because I'm sure most people knew but it was more in the public consciousness. People were fighting in the 60s and 70s. It was a very important time in American history for multiple groups of people. But by 1972, the ERA was passed by Congress because in this time, Congress Ooh. actually agreed on things, <laughs> which is <Yeah>. strange. <laughs> so the Equal Rights Amendment passed. The Democrats and Republicans agreed like, yeah, people shouldn't be discriminated against. But the weird thing with amending the Constitution is it's not just Congress that needs to agree on it, and it's not just the president who has to approve the new amendment. 
a super majority of states also have to sign up on it. It's called ratifying. So you need 38 out of the 50 states, which is two-thirds majority, to say, yeah, we agree with this. Our state agrees with this. We love this. Love this for us. And that's where the problem started because, like I said before, the story doesn't have a happy ending. Of the 38 states, only 35 were ratified. And yeah, three, three, just three. We just needed three to have this amendment. But um, something happened in the mid-1970s, and this is specifically why I wanted to talk about it in relation to the article, because this, the ERA was in headlines. It was an event that was happening throughout the entire decade. There is no way you were an adult in the United States and you had not heard about the Equal Rights Amendment and the pushback to the Equal Rights Amendment. And that pushback was mostly from conservative-leaning citizens led by a woman named Phyllis Schlafly. 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 I think the first time I told you that name, you said she sounded like, what, a cartoon character? I... I said that she sounded like some, a car- not a cartoon character, but like a character from the TV show The Office. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that too. Yeah, she does. Unfortunately, she's not as funny. <laughs> she was a conservative housewife who led a large group of people to protests and signing all sorts of different documents saying, hey, we don't agree with this. Please, like basically going state by state for the ones who to the states who hadn't ratified this amendment yet and saying, please don't ratify this. And their main argument was that the amendment had very loose wording and they were very concerned that the courts who would be using this amendment to, in different court cases and, you know, sending people to jail, not sending people to jail, they were worried that the courts would interpret the ERA as abortion on demand, same-sex marriage, and women in the draft, (laughs) which... Coming from a 21st century perspective is like, well, yeah, no shit. That's what equal rights means. (laughs) But to them, that was the worst case scenario. They were very worried and they were happy with where they were in life and they didn't want people to have those rights. The people who wanted those rights, they didn't want them to have them because they themselves, they were content. So this campaign lasted through the 70s. So through when Women in Magic was written in 1976. So again, in my mind, no way that people who were adults didn't know this was happening. And because of this campaign led by Phyllis Schlafly, the deadline to ratify this amendment passed um, in 1982. You have about seven years the states do to debate and to ratify it. It did not pass. They were successful. And because of this, gender equality to this day is not fully protected by the U.S. Constitution. And sex equality, which is just sad. This is a sad section, unfortunately. Sorry, guys. Sorry to (laughs) to be a downer. The fun analysis is coming later. Don't you worry. But this, got to talk about it. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. But, you know, bright side, the women's right to vote is in the Constitution. It's the 19th Amendment. So if you're ever scared about women losing the right to vote, don't worry. You won't. Probably. (laughs) Probably. Probably. It's in the Constitution. It's very hard. It's very hard to get things out of the Constitution. And fun fact, I guess, to um, round out this section before we talk about Roe v. Wade, is uh, states can, I found this out while researching, states can actually still ratify amendments past the expiration date. And 
as of January 2020, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. So technically, right now, all of the states have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. But because the deadline is passed, it isn't an amendment yet. And there's a big gray area on if it ever will be an amendment. So if you're politically active and you want to see the ERA in the U.S. amendment and you're a U.S. citizen, talk to your reps about it. It might actually happen in the future. Who knows if it will? I don't know that much about politics, but that's people are still petitioning for it for this day. So little bright side. (laughs) It may have been dead in the water in 1982, but it might still happen. We don't know. You know, I have a little bit of hope in this dark, dark time. (laughs) So this is the big one. Next up, I'll be talking a little bit about Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton because this was happening a couple of years after the ERA or really in the midst of the ERA, actually. They crossed paths because Phyllis Schlafly's stuff was happening there. The ratification of the ERA was happening right around the time Roe v. Wade and then a lesser-known case called Dovey Bolton were going to, through the Supreme Court. So I know, Lissa, before I start this section, do you know what the Supreme Court of the U.S. is and what powers it has? And are you confused about it? <laughs> I feel like I'm being put on the spot. <laughs> well, I don't want to just be me, like, just talking all the time. I, it's important because our listeners are not from the U.S. too. So they're que- you might have questions that they have questions about, and I will do my best as an American. So from what I understand, which I have been ranted at by my multiple American friends very recently, <laughs> the Supreme Court is a bunch of people who were voted no i don't know if voted is the right word no nope. who were put nope. in this power by maybe the president maybe not the president but some people in power put these people in what they call the supreme court and they make some sort of important decisions regarding things and they serve for their entire lives, I think, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's all I got for this. <laughs> that's good. Honestly, that's a lot. That's good for somebody who's not from the States and has never lived here. The fact that you know that much about our politics says a lot. <laughs> I mean, if you asked me three years ago, I wouldn't be able to tell you that much. But uh <laughs> Having you as a friend of me and having other frenemies from America really <laughs> catches you up real quick when you have discussions about <laughs> politics. It's almost as if the country is in political turmoil right now. Really? Um, it's really yeah. weird. I, I, I couldn't say why. Strange. Very strange. Mm. But you got it right. So TLDR, the Supreme Court is a, a court of nine justices who are not elected by the people. So the people elect the president of the United States. And the president of the United States, if there is ever a vacancy on the Supreme Court, they nominate somebody who is affiliated with their party to sit on the Supreme Court. So the people do not vote for these, but the people vote for the person who puts them on the court, if that makes sense. 
Mm. And they have lifetime terms, and they basically interpret the Constitution. So the whole court system, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I don't know how any of this works, really. But from my plebeian understanding, when a case has to do with an interpretation of the Constitution that the courts just can't seem to agree on, it makes its way through the system and may eventually reach the Supreme Court of the United States. And when they interpret the law, which is usually interpreting the Constitution that we talked about earlier and the amendments therein, their word is law. So their interpretation is the be-all, end-all. So their decision, while it doesn't technically make a law, it does enforce other lawmakers and um, the judicial branch of the government to start interpreting the Constitution the way the Supreme Court did. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of make sense? I think Ish. so. In as much as my brain can handle American <laughs> politics. American politics. <laughs> Absolutely valid. So for this section, all you need to know is the Supreme Court interpreted two very important cases, mm-hmm. which then led to abortion becoming legal in the United States because people could no longer sue other people for getting an abortion because it was protected by this ruling, by this interpretation of the Constitution. Does it make sense? Fucking not really. But that's how people justify it. And uh, I hope for our international listeners that made sense. And if any Americans are listening and you're thinking, Sharda, you got that dead ass wrong, um, call us out on social media. Call me out. That's totally fine. I will 100% admit fault. (laughs) I am not a legal expert. I just did research on these two cases, which I will get to now before we run out of time for this section. Anyway, so Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. These were going on around the time that the article was not necessarily being published. It was a couple years before, but this kind of influenced the climate and the conversations about women and feminism around this time. So it's kind of impossible to talk about the 1970s the second uh, second wind feminism, second... Second wave feminism? Second wave feminism in the 1970s. It's impossible to talk about it. These two cases are all about bodily autonomy, and they were ruled on three years before the article was published. So the first one is about Jane Roe, who is actually a woman named Norma McCorvey, and her case, Roe v. Wade was about the constitutional right to privacy. That's what the argument was. So the case originated in Texas and it actually started in 1969 when 21-year-old Nora McCorvey became pregnant. This was her third pregnancy, but because of substance abuse and money issues, she did not parent either of her other children. But this time, she wanted a schmashmorshman. Mm. An abortion. <laughs> I just wrote Trish Morshman to try to lighten the mood. Did it work? I don't know. <laughs> she could not afford to leave her state, Texas, or obtain a, quote, hush-hush abortion by a physician. So she ended up working with two attorneys named Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, who were at the time looking to file a test case with someone whose age and social class would illustrate the unfairness in abortion law. So they kind of found each other. So there were conversations in the law community happening around this time that like abortion was and the discrepancies of class and abortion specifically were circulating uh, around lawmakers. And there were lawyers that wanted to 
basically changed that. They wanted to showcase why abortion rights were not fair mm-hmm. and they favored rich white women. They could get abortions whenever they wanted to, but if you were a lower class person of color or just a lower class person, you probably would ha- be forced to carry a child you could not care for or did not want and you would have no resources to have that choice. Yeah. And so together they sued Henry Wade, which is where the Wade come from, Wade. Wade. He was the district attorney of Norma McCorvey's county. And their main argument was that the law violated women's constitutional right to privacy, their freedom to live with undue governmental in- intrusion, and in their personal lives. So they're just like, government, none your business. None your fucking business <laughs> what these people are doing. Yeah. And a similar case at the time was about Mary Mary Doe, which was another code name. The real person behind the Doe v. Bolton case, her name was Sandra Bensing. And she's from Georgia, another southern state, which had stricter abortion laws. And she wanted an abortion after getting pregnant with her fourth child in 1970. So she was pursuing divorce, had trouble raising her children, each of whom had been adopted or were in foster care. And she ended up working with the ACLU, which is the American Civil Liberties Union, after she was refused a therapeutic abortion, which is a catch-all term for ending a pregnancy on purpose. They sued Georgia Attorney General Arthur Bolton, and their argument was that she should have been approved for the abortion because of a psychiatric disability They argued that the law infringed on her constitutional right to privacy and self-determination, which connects it to Roe. And they also argued that it prevented medical professionals from doing their jobs and saving somebody's life. That was their main argument. So these cases started in 1969, 1970. They made their way through the courts and eventually made their way to the Supreme Court on and were ruled upon on January 22nd. 1973. They favored, they ruled in favor of both of them. Yay! Woo! Woo! A happy story that definitely does not have an unhappy ending as of a month ago. Nope. Yay! (laughs) Um, The response to this was actually initially quiet, which I found very surprising. And it wasn't until, it didn't really make super major headlines well, I mean, it made headlines, but, like, the public didn't really, like, react, react to it until major religious groups, specifically Catholic groups, rallied a national movement determined to see the decisions reversed. So very similar to the ERA, there was a conservative, mostly religious pushback mm-hmm. on this ruling. And unfortunately, they succeeded. Like 50 years later. Yeah. Boo. (laughs) Hiss. Anyway, ending on that somber note. Sorry, guys. (laughs) I was a bit of a downer, that one. Apologies. So let me get right to the conclusion on why the fuck I'm talking about this and why I brought the mood right down. Charday, why'd you make yourself mad? And, um... And sad and frustrated and all the emotions. And how does it link to D&D? Exactly. How the fuck? Why am I talking about this? Um, I'm talking about it for the podcast. (laughs) 
We're a D&D podcast, y'all. <laughs> talking about it for a D&D podcast. Um, yeah, so I just thought it was super important to because second wave feminism was happening in the 1970s, a bunch of landmark political shit having to do with women and autonomy was happening in the 1970s. So I just wanted to highlight those, go into detail about what I feel are the two really big ones that were happening during this time and probably got the most press coverage to prove that a lot of really important shit was happening during this time when it comes to women's rights and historical context, in my opinion, is always super, super important. Not only does it gauge, you know, public consciousness at that time, but just reminds us that that environments and what's going on around you are going to have an impact, in my opinion, on things, whether it's subconsciously or consciously. And again, I just found the juxtaposition between the article that we're going to be analyzing in just a couple minutes to women gaining all of these rights and also fighting for these rights passionately at this time the juxtaposition of that and how women are treated in this article and who are written about in this article is just so different. Like this was a time of liberation. This was a time of women winning a lot of shit with the exception of the ERA. That was one of the biggest losses. But, you know, Title IX and being able to get an education, having bodily autonomy and getting credit cards, that was all happening with pushback, of course, but it was still happening. There are a lot of wins. And I want to make it a point to say that I don't think TSR or Dragon Magazine folks leaned one way politically or the other. That's not the point of this. But I thought it was very important to highlight that the article does a very interesting thing where it separates women as the other talks about them as like a group that they need to like here's if you want to if you want women to come into D&D here's how you do it here's this elusive gender this elusive sex that you need to bring into your game mm. and it, it it otherizes them in a time when women were finally becoming not the other they were gaining rights so I thought it was just so interesting this article almost acted as a counterculture Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Because when you think of counterculture, you, you usually think of like hippies mm -hmm. of how and how people were protesting the Vietnam War and Woodstock and all that stuff in the 60s and how that was really counterculture to the um, the war and the American patriotism and all of that stuff. But in the 70s, it was all about rights. It was all about freedom. But this is this article is restrictive and sexist and treats women in a way that is counter to the rights that they were gaining. And I wanted to pose the hypothesis that maybe this was a factor in why Dragon Magazine cared to write about attracting women into D&D at all, because women gaining rights during this time Women were everywhere. They were feminists were everywhere. They what? were taking over everything. Ah! <laughs> They're just a big monster that's taking over and getting all these rights. How dare um, they? <laughs> how dare they? So they probably had their own opinions on it. We're not speaking to what those opinions are, but it, it's impossible to look back on the 70s 
and not see all of these positive things happening. But then this article also happened and there was this there was a pushback to all of these rights happening. And yeah, I just I really wanted to highlight the time because I just thought it was so interesting because usually when we do historical context, right, like Mm -hmm. we talk about like with Gary Gygax and be like, oh, well, he grew up. During this time, this yeah. is how women were treated. This is how the culture was. And his mindset aligned with how the culture was. Yeah. But in this case, it doesn't really because the culture at the time and women's gaining rights was way more like it was a liberation. Yeah. But they weren't, in my opinion, in this article, very liberated. No, I don't. It. For what this article is, like, I did briefly discuss in my overview of what the article is. It pretends to be, like, an invitation to bring women into D&D, but what it ends up being is a very restrictive inclusion of women in D&D. Mm-hmm. It's bringing them into D&D, but saying, hold on. You're not going to have the same stats as men because obviously they're a, we're a binary, which by that, I mean, I don't think so, but they did think so. So we're going to run with that. So you're not going to have the same strength as men. You're not going to have the same character abilities as men, but don't worry. You'll have these different statistics that are completely weird and stereotyped to what women are in the real world because that's realistic to us and it's this really strange take on women from a very cis white male perspective of this is how we include women and then enforcing gender stereotypes by thinking they're being inclusive, but really by restricting them to the stereotypes that they think women are. And that's where I think the problem comes in. Yeah. I 100% agree. So, without further ado, let's get to the shit everybody's been waiting for. Part three. Article analysis. Yeah. Welcome to part three, the juice, the article analysis, the good shit, the thing you came for, where we dig in to the meat and we tear it apart because that's what we're good at. Tearing things apart. (laughs) Tearing meat apart specifically. (laughs) A good steak. What did you think I meant? Jeez. Uh, Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> so to recap what have we learned so far we have talked about who wrote this article we have speculated on why they have may have written this article we have talked about slightly in general broad terms what we don't like about this article without going into too much detail but just kind of brushing off the fact that this is trash and should not exist <laughs> And we have looked at when this article was written and what was happening around the time and prior to the article being written 
what was happening in the sphere, in the political sphere, if you will, of the United States. So let's get into the meaty bit, into the good shit. And we will select some of our favorite passages and analyze them for our listeners, our lovely listeners who get to hear us rant about all the things we hate about this article. Because unfortunately, there is not really one good part of it, no. in my opinion. <laughs> and we tried to go in chronological order-ish and also cover as many bases as we can. We'll obviously link to the article in our sources and you can form your own opinions. Mm -hmm. We tried to narrow it down and... Also, it's like part analysis, part like summary of the worst shit that's in this article. <laughs> yeah. And let's start with the title. Because <laughs> we didn't even get that far. That, that pissed us off first. Yeah. So the title, as a reminder, the full title is Notes on Women and Magic, colon, Bringing the Distaff Gamer into D&D. Distaff? Distaff. D-I-S-T-A-F-F. Die staff? We didn't look up how to pronounce. We don't look up how to pronounce anything <laughs> before we record, um, obviously. But I was unfamiliar with this word, obviously, seeing as how neither of us can pronounce it. So one of my first things that I did was I looked up what distaff means. And as a noun and how I think they were meaning it, because it has a couple different terminology. You can use it a couple different ways. as like a noun and an adjective, et cetera. But as a noun, it means a staff for holding the flax, toe, or wool in spinning. And it also means women's work or domain, which the fact that it means both those things gave me the ick <laughs> because spinster, you know, like spinning wool, spinster, that's a very negative connotation, a negative term that people use for usually like single women. Like, mm -hmm. who don't have a partner, mm -hmm. cat lady, like that kind of stuff. They probably meant it as just women's work or domain, but I found it just odd that that's the specific word that they chose <laughs> that also means spinning wool, but also means women's work. Like, if you think about the etymology of that, it's kind of icky and also struck me as a very Gygaxian word. Absolutely. It's a word you have to look up. Yeah. <laughs> like in the dictionary. Mm. Um, like I have two writing degrees and I did not know what that word meant. Does that say more about me or the word? I don't know, <laughs> but I did have to look it up. And then right after that, so my next thing that I wanted to point out was um, very early on in the article, it talks about something called a beauty score, which we have alluded to in previous sections. So if you're wondering what the fuck a beauty score is, here's your answer. Because I had heard of a beauty score before in passing. I don't remember if it was through research or just conversations. But apparently this is where it originates is in this Dragon Magazine article. And it is a score that replaces charisma. It's recommended for magic users, thieves, and fighters. And for those who are curious... A 15 to 18 beauty score means you're beautiful. And 19 to 20 means you're an exceptional beauty. And if this score is anything like mm. the scores in 5th edition, which is what I'm familiar with, a 15 <laughs> to have as an ability score is so goddamn high. <laughs> like, 
you're basically an expert in something. So you can't even be beautiful if you're like a 12 or a 10, which is like an average score, especially for a low character. You got to be like a 15 plus two to beauty in order to be beautiful, which mechanically didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me. Also, the fact that beauty is subjective. So why the fuck would you put a score to it? But I think Lissa and I both have the answer to that. It's because Gygax loved putting scores and mechanics to things that didn't necessarily need them. Yeah, just adding adding more mechanics and gamifying things that really might not have needed a gamification just to mm-hmm. make it more complex to play and to add to his game yeah and this article wasn't written by Gygax but it was written by somebody who had direct ties to Gygax Mm -hmm. and AD&D and 2E is just Gygaxian game design 101 basically so that's kind of the connection I would make to that one more thing I want to say about the beauty score is a fun fact I didn't know and maybe a future topic for the episode so We mentioned that this article was sent to us on Twitter by Stefan Huddleston, fan of the show, friend of the show. And when we were exchanging notes back and forth, he offered some really great context um, that he gave me permission (laughs) to um, repeat on here because in case it's relevant, I think this one is really relevant. So he noted here when in terms of the beauty score that in second edition, they eventually added the stat comeliness to rate physical beauty for all PCs. And when they did that, it became a dump stat for male PCs, even more so than charisma is for like martial classes in fifth edition. I thought that was so interesting that the beauty stat mm. eventually became like an actual mechanic that I we haven't run into that yet, have we? When we've been no, looking I at second edition, aka our worst nightmare. Yeah. That is interesting. The beauty score may have been the first introduction to the comeliness stat in second edition. It became an actual stat in the actual books instead of being in the magazine, which I don't like. But I mean, it goes to show that Dragon Magazine was a source for content that began or was introduced in the magazine and then made its way into the actual source books themselves. Just goes to show just that when show. we talk about Dragon Magazine and D&D specifically, even though they're not official modules, they're still like part of the D&D family, yeah. I would say. Oh, no, definitely. And they were worked on by the same people who did work mm-hmm. on the actual source books themselves. And they were looked at by Guy Gax and improved then, I think, in as they worked their way into the source books themselves. But that is very interesting. And I think for me, one of the first two things that when I opened up the article that I took a look at was there are two very prominent images in this article. So on the four pages, there are two illustrations of women. And uh, I'm just I'm going to go through them with you. So I'm going to describe (laughs) them for you. So the first one, it's a comic, a comic book sort of drawing of a, they look 
like a like short. So I'm going to guess that this is meant to be like a, a halfling, be just because of the the proportions of their body. So a small woman with long, maybe blonde hair. It's it's black and a black and white picture, so it's it's not colored in. With what looks like they maybe have a part of their hair braided at the back. They are wearing like a low cut top that is gray. And it looks like it's a bit off the shoulder, maybe on one side. So you can see a bit of cleavage, but it's not anything, you know, very obvious. They are holding we've seen worse. Yeah, we've seen worse. They're holding either two daggers or one sword and one dagger. It's a bit difficult to say because of the perspective. I don't know about the pants, because those are either very tight shorts or underwear, maybe. What would you say, Shorte? I would classify those as booty shorts. Yeah. So very tight I think. booty shorts that are black. And not functional armor. No, basically. not. I wouldn't even call that armor at all. Those look like clothes to me. You might be able to pass them off as like leather armor if you Maybe. really wanted to because it's like mm-hmm. lighter, but it's definitely not functional armor. <laughs> and don't give me that crap about, oh, there's magic enchanted. I don't give a shit. Like it's, <laughs> no. <laughs> like this is obviously was not drawn with that in mind, in my opinion. But I think the second yeah. image is worse, honestly, to be honest. Well, I mean, yeah, we'll get to that. And so I think the problem I have with this image is she's making the duck face before the duck face was a thing. <laughs> yeah, sure. And that 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 just that bothers me. Yeah. It is drawn by somebody called Paul Jacques. Jacques. Paul Jacques. And yeah. You'll be we will link you to the article so you can look at these pictures yourselves. But I think the more <laughs> problematic image that is in the book is by an artist I, d- I cannot decipher the name of. I did put the name or the signature on Instagram for people to guess at. Their name may or may not be Simoez. I don't know. I cannot read it. I cannot decipher it. But it is a uh, an artistic interpretation of the female body. A naked female body that is wrapped in maybe clouds maybe a scarf of some sort for you know the intimate bits down there but obviously the breasts are showing and they are colored in to make sure that you definitely know it's breasts and there are nipples on there very detailed for that part of the drawing I think the biggest problem I have with this is not the fact that it's a female body but the fact that it is Orientalism. It is Orientalism because I think it's trying to depict an Asian woman with like an elaborate headpiece that looks very typical, like ancient Asian cultural headgear with slanted eyes. And she's kind of leaning back. Maybe, maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but she looks to be divine and she looks oriental 
And there are, there's also, like, I have a bit of an issue with the chicken arms that she has, because those are freaking <laughs> weird. Like, they're very, I know it's a thing with perspective, I know we're looking at her from the front and she might be doing something with her hands, but they, they, they look unnaturally short. I, I mean, I can't comment on that because I can't draw worth shit, um, <laughs> but I think your comment on Orientalism, I mean, it's our opinions, obviously, and it's our interpretation of it, but I think with your context about what else is in Dragon Magazine kind of points to maybe you being kind of on the nose because they were also talking in the same issue about seppuku and samurais as a, an optional um, fighter subclass that I believe... A, at some point, samurais were an actual in the guidebook subclass for fighters. So I don't think you're that far off, honestly. Yeah. Whether or not they intended it or not, there's obviously a through line and they were taking inspirations from those things at this time. Yeah. Also, she just has titties out, though. Yeah. Just I mean, titties out. I mean, but the, from anything that's like around the time that AD&D came out, I'm ju- I just expect the naked female form. Oh yeah, 100%. So this is, at this point, I'm so used to seeing the naked female form that when they draw a naked female form, I'm like, yep, that's it. That that checks out. Yeah, it's about right. Yeah. At least it's not like overtly sexual, I wouldn't say. Like they're not, I wouldn't necessarily, I would say the first one is more sexual with her duck face and yeah. um, features and booty shorts. But this one is more divine and you could depict divine figures with like topless. No, I think they, they are very inherently different kinds of illustrations the first one is I think more so stereotyping what you would think like a, a bl- if you would have somebody who's like a stereotypical female play a rogue of you know like in booty shorts with like a low-cut top you know like looking hella cool where with two daggers doing a duck face with blonde hair like that's stereotyping what maybe a white woman would play and then you have on the opposite spectrum you have the orientalist glorification of an asian woman which i i don't know what the relevance is to this article there isn't one i think they just had pictures of women just to say just to illustrate it i don't we also can't say whether these pictures were drawn for the article itself yeah. or they were just something in the TSR vaults that they just picked up and like, oh, we're writing an article about how to attract women into D&D. Here are some pictures of women that we have the rights to. Let's put them here. We, ha- we have no idea. These yeah. are two different artists, two different art styles. We don't know if they were drawn for the article, but they were chosen for it either way, even if they weren't drawn for it. So mm-hmm. – very typical TSR, I would say, with yeah. their depictions of women. There's nothing wrong with men drawing women, but there's a problem when all women figures in early D&D were just drawn without the proper like armor, when men were drawn with proper armor, pictures of female gods with their titties out, when there are no pictures of men with their dicks out, like that <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, it's all about equality. Uh, that's it. That's all we want. If we're going to include naked or scantily clad people in your work as art just do it equally for all genders involved it's not that difficult that's all we want (laughs) yeah so after the images we they go into specific details about the different classes that women may play and that is the specific rhetoric that they use is women may play these one of the classes that 
women may play as are thieves. This includes the races of dwarves, elves, and hobbit, hobbit women who may act as thieves. So female thieves are said to be the same as male thieves, except that they have a or except that higher level female thieves can also additionally learn some limited magic, which male thieves cannot. And because of their beauty stat, beautiful thieves are capable of using spells such as seduction and charming men. And an interesting thing that I found also was that tarot reading is also under the work of thieves because obviously tarot reading is taking people's money away from you like in a ridiculous way because tarot reading has no art in its form whatsoever, is not based on any sort of science, any belief system, and is definitely a conspiracy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I just found that weird. Well, with that, I, I had the same thought because I thought it was kind of left out of left field, honestly. Not like necessarily like I think tarot reading is fucking rad as hell. And I love tarot reading as a concept, just as a mechanic, just in real life. It's just flat out fun, in yeah. my opinion. I really like it. But yeah, I thought it was kind of out of left field. And then I thought about it. I'm like, aren't most tarot readers when they're depicted in media women? Yeah. Like I don't. I can't think off of the top of my head any time that I've ever seen a male tarot reader. The only time I've ever seen a male tarot reader that I can think of is the character of Molly Mock from Critical Role. Mm. And that is a very niche <laughs> reference in the D&D community. So what I thought when I first read that is like, is the only reason that they put that in there for female thieves specifically is because only female thieves would want to be tarot readers because yeah thieves are associated with yeah swindling money and like all this stuff but specifically they put tarot reading in here because tarot reading is usually associated with women that's kind of how i it's read it it's enforcing the gender stereotype of women as tarot readers like i mean you yeah. can use anything to swindle people out of money it doesn't have to be tarot reading and it's not just limited to tarot reading like you can if you wanted to, you could swindle people out of, like, I don't know, selling candy. But the point is, they're enforcing stereotypes of, like, oh, women mm -hmm. like tarot reading. And they use that to get money out of people. Like, obviously. That makes total sense. Yeah. Don't pickpocket. Tarot read. <laughs> and I think a bigger like issue that I had with just the thieves class in general was the way that they named these the levels of experience that like women get as you level up in thievery. So you start off with zero experience, like literally your XP is zero, and you have the name of being a wench. You don't start off as like, I don't know, like a low level thief. You start off as a wench. If you are a female thief, you are a wench when you start off. Blech. And... I just, it, literally in the story that I, t I talked about that comes after this section is the buxom wench who is the tavern woman who gives them the glasses of ale, the mugs of ale. So is mm -hmm. she a thief? Because she's a buxom wench. Is she an actual thief? Does she take things from the men? No, I don't think so. It's not explicitly said, but like, wh why? Why do they call them wenches? I don't because understand. Because they don't respect, because they don't respect women, <laughs> in my opinion. 
<laughs> like wench is a derogatory term. People like, yeah, they're yeah. now we have women reclaiming words, right? Mm-hmm. Like we call our fans harlots. Yeah. Like we reclaim those words as women. We call ourselves the trolls. Yeah. We 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 are reclaiming that because it's been used in the past against women. As a derogatory term. Yeah. So, but when a man is writing about a women subclass and calling them a wench, that's not reclaiming a term. That's just them being an asshole, yeah. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And like, it gets worse, right? Like, wench it, is just the tip of the iceberg. So go ahead, quickly go through all the other ones. Yeah. That is just the start of the thievery. So you come into level two at 1000 XP. You become a hag. You go from a wench, you become a hag. Now, I don't know... Who came up with the idea that you're suddenly going into witch territory? But, I I mean, I guess they have magic, but why are you suddenly a hag? That comes with so much baggage. We've already talked about hags on this podcast. That comes with so much baggage and imagery with 1000 XP from going a wench to going a hag. I just, I just don't. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't stop there. At number three, you become a jade. Now, I had to look this up. It's... Either a broken down, vicious, or worthless horse, which I thought was hilarious and also very <laughs> rude, or it is a disreputable woman slash a flirtatious girl, which I'm sure. hoping they mean a disreputable woman and flirtatious girl. Because honestly, well, I don't know. They already call this a wench and a hag, so at this yeah, point, like, it could be either or it's a toss yeah. up. Okay, so we've gotten three levels in thievery. Now, what would you think the next one is? Think about it. Think about it. No, you're wrong. Whatever you thought, you're wrong. Because it's a succubus. You become a succubus (laughs) with 4,000 XP in thievery. I just, there's no logic. There's no, yeah, there's no logic. It it doesn't follow any rule. It, It comes with so much baggage. We've talked about succubi on this podcast, too. I don't understand what these names are and why they're here. We come down, it's adventurous, soothsayer, okay, those are fine. But then, again, why would you let me go off easy? Because you gotta call the second to highest level a gypsy. Because, again, enforce that, that, that's just blatant racism, I think. That's just blatant racism, that's stereotypes, that's... I I have no words for how this makes me feel. Yeah. It's it's rude, it's racist, it's enforcing stereotypes on a whole group of people mm-hmm. by calling gypsies like high-level thieves essentially. And yeah, that's that's all I really have to say about thieves. Like I men should not name or give names to women. That's <laughs> White men should not give names to women. That's all I'm going to say. In this context. In this context. So we go into fighters, where women have a strength cap, obviously, because biological determinism. And so because of this strength cap, women fighters are unable to use some weaponry and types of armor which are too difficult for them to wield or bear without undue fatigue. I mean, it realistically makes sense, but uh, I don't like it. I hate it. We've talked about the strength. Ca- a lot of the stuff we've already talked about before, so I don't want to go into super detail, but like we don't agree with the strength cap. We think it's dumb. 
it's a fantasy game. You play what you want. Putting caps on an entire gender of player characters is just, it's not balanced first off and it just doesn't make any logical sense. But another thing I wanted to point out is not only is this quote just ridiculous, um, there is another quote at toward the beginning of this article that I shared on Twitter that a lot of people had very strong opinions about. And that was only as fighters are women clearly behind men in all cases. Oof. And it's just clearly, clearly behind men in all cases. It's just, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> it is just, I, I can't tell if they're trying to be funny. I don't think they are. I think they're taking themselves very seriously. There are some sections where they are trying to make a joke, but it's not funny. And this, it's just, it's so close-minded and just to tell an entire gender, like you're trying to welcome women into your game and you're trying to tell them, oh yeah, you can play a fighter. You're not going to be as good as a man though. What fucking woman, <laughs> what fucking player in general would be cool with that when they want to play a game where it's a fantasy game and anything is possible and you put that limitation on them? Really? It's so... It's not even balanced. It's not even balanced. They talk about balance, and the author talked about balancing mm -hmm. AD&D, like mm -hmm. you were saying earlier. This isn't balancing. This is making it worse. I Do you – are you that not – are you just not self-aware? I don't know. I could go on, but it's gross. It's so misunderstanding of the entire point of this – article that you're trying to include mm -hmm. women and then you make the mechanics so bad or or so against women being able to play that it, mm -hmm. it it's so i want to say blindsided but that's not like the right word that I'm, I'm looking for the right word it's so they're they're missing the entire point that they're trying to do yep they're not being welcoming they are pushing people away mechanically they are not balancing they're making it worse full stop yeah, and it's enforcing stereotypes, and it it's yep. it's not fun. I would say, as like if this is what you're trying to do to get women to play D anD D, or anyone else to play D anD D, this is not how you go about doing it. And I am not surprised that more women did not play D anD D. I am not surprised no. that it took longer for other people, other genders, to want to play D anD D because if this is the way you're going to go about doing it to become inclusive, quote-unquote. Yeah, that's not going to work. No. Moving on, so we have clerics, and again, there's just weird, random rules that they have. So, natural and lawful clerics are never permitted to use their female charms. Okay, that's, that's just weird, but okay, if that's how you want to roll. Chaotic clerics, however, are allowed to use the spell called Worship. So it's a fourth level cleric spell that they can use when they are a beauty score of 11 or higher. So above what's called natural beauty, I guess, 11 or a higher is not called considered beautiful according to their it's standards. It's not. That would be a... Yeah, that if would be you're a slightly above neutral beauty from their terms, all men will idolize the cleric within 12, I'm guessing feet, it says inches? but within 12 feet, and there is no contact and she has no power over them save to prevent combat and keep them in a trance. A slightly 
mediocre, beautiful character can use a spell to entrance a group of people within 12 feet that she has no contact over, but she needs, but she does so to prevent combat by keeping them in a trance. And it is called worship. And I don't know who's worshiping who. Are the men worshiping her? Like, I, I don't, I don't understand. I think so. I think that's how it works. And it's gross. That's all I, honestly, I, most of the stuff, most of my commentary is, it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think it's interesting. I'm not going to go through the entire list of what they're called, like in their levels, but I think it's very interesting that the highest rank of cleric is called a matriarch. Well, the three highest ranks are called a matriarch. We love that. Mm. <laughs> so then we come into the class of magic users. <laughs> it's stated that experience points above 13th level are comparable to male magic users and their female powers are nearly equal when they're at 13th level. You may make them equal, in fact, with no problem, beginning with which level 13 equals wizard level 13. So up until witches get to level 13, they are not equal with wizards. For why? But For when you why? come to level 13, they're suddenly the equal. I don't know, because of a learning curve? I don't know. There's no explanation. Yeah, they never justify anything. They just say, and that's part of the problem, I think, inherently with the article, is they never justify through lore. They never justify through anything that this is why women are behind. They just assume that the reader knows implicitly that women are lesser than men and that's what makes this article just I can't even say anything good about it because even if a mechanic's like oh haha that'd be fun in game no not really because it just they're assuming that the reader knows that women are lesser than men that females are lesser than males however they want to word it like they never give any explanation as to why they are lesser they just assume that the reader knows that women are lesser and that's just the implicit problem yeah with how this is written and why this is written and bleh. like i don't know if this comes from a background of them being biological determinists i don't know if this is Maybe. them having done research into the the rate that women and men learn at different stages in their lives i don't know all i know is they're telling me that up until i as a woman playing a witch or a magic user, I am inferior to a wizard of the same level up until the point that I get to level 13. I don't know why, but I am. But then at that point, I am at the same level. I don't know why. No explanation. Whatever. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're at magic users. You get spells for being pretty. And we have picked out some highlights for you, which we will read out. So one of the spells that magic users get for being pretty is Charm Humanoid Monster. Its purpose is to prevent battle. Obviously, as women, we do not like conflict and we would want to prevent conflict. Stereotype, but sure. So the charmed male monster, if you are able to charm the male monster, will either become catatonic or... He will, my favorite, disarm and carry off the women to his lair. To do what? Play cards? I don't think so. <laughs> and I think this 
article was written in the 70s, so it very obviously is heteronormative. So Mm -hmm. when they are talking about female players slash female characters using charms, they're always talking about them using this is going to be used on a male monster or a male NPC. It's never, it can, they never say just a NPC. They never say a monster. They always specify that it has to be male, which is a very interesting rhetorical choice. They made that choice. Mm -hmm. Like they could have very easily just said, this is used against charm humanoid monster is just used against a monster. But no, they specifically said male monster. They are making these choices reinforcing heteronormativity which isn't surprising for the time because unfortunately people of the lgbtq plus community did not have a lot of rights at this time and heteronormativity is still the societal norm but yeah and then like with your commentary disarm and carry the woman to his later at least the, the the question of consent kind of comes into play there as well which i don't want to get too far into and put words in their mouth but yeah it's it's not great yeah it's not great but i will say benefit the doubt before we move on to the next spell because we're almost running out of time because we have a lot of opinions (laughs) this article um i i will say the benefit of the doubt for charm to prevent battle yeah it's a female stereotype but i think that's kind of pushing it like a little bit because i think the effects of charm to prevent battle isn't necessarily a female thing, but it does say a lot that they put that in the female article. I think you're right on the nose, but I think preventing battle is just a good strategy overall that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with gender. But the fact that they put that mm. in the article about attracting women, that is iffy. Yeah. That's real iffy. The next spell is some stuff that I have written up because this is a, a seduction spell. So we've all heard, well, if you're in the D&D community, you've probably heard of seduction mechanics and rolling to seduce. So seduction is a mechanic started as a spell in this specific issue, we believe. And the spell enchants the victim and says that he, again, heteronormative, he will remove his armor and lay down his weapons and attempt an encounter with the lady who is casting the spell. (laughs) And um, again, the question of consent comes into play, which is, you know, all types of gross. More so for the person who is under the spell. Like when you're under a love spell, you can't consent, really. Mm -hmm. And also it's just, I'm just shaking my head. Like what else is there to say, (laughs) honestly? And it's a spell that can, there are five different versions that do the same thing, but it's just like casting a spell at a higher level in D&D mechanics. So seduction can be used as a first level spell through a fifth level spell. And it is used on living humanoid unharmed males, so they can't have any damage done to them, only by women with the proper beauty score. And there's a chart because it's based not just on beauty score, but also whether or not you can seduce a creature, an NPC, is based on race. Just let that sink in. So there's a whole chart, and the races they categorize are men, elves, orcs, hobbits, which we know now as halflings, and dwarves. And we will put the chart – we won't go through every single score or anything, but we'll put that in our sources. After this chart, they basically say, well, this this is the DC that you need. This is the beauty score that you need to have in order to seduce this race, which is just 
gross. Mm-hmm. And they also have a descriptor underneath in case that wasn't abundantly clear by the table. They also say underneath the table that women with a lower beauty score than given in the chart cannot seduce the given man of the other race. And they specify that female orc thieves and fighters cannot seduce an elf. <laughs> why? They don't dis- They don't say why. They just put that in there. That just makes sense to everyone. Just makes sense to them. No explanation is needed for the statement. It just it it just no. makes it worldwide. This is worldwide logic. This just makes yeah. sense. I don't I don't understand. Yeah. So thank God there's a saving throw. <laughs> thank fucking God. And they also detail the saving throws. But they also, this is the first and I think only time I will talk about them trying to make a joke because flat out, anytime they try to make a joke in this article, I don't find it funny because I'm a raging feminist. (laughs) They, in the descriptions of saving throws for seduction spell, they give an example of, and I'm going to say preface this with this is very bad grammar, which we talked about, I think Lissa prefaced that some of this uh, article is written grammatically kind of iffy and we had to dissect some of that i'm going to be putting my interpretation as to what i think they meant but the grammar is just a bit odd to me they say that a fighter needs a score of 13 or higher to be saved and in parentheses they write that is not laid is that being saved and that is just such a a weird i don't it's hot weird how that's worded yeah (laughs) It's just weird. It also has three question marks under it, which is not grammatically correct for any (laughs) style guide of any magazine ever. Um, But that's a personal thing. But what I interpreted that to mean, which again, I'll repeat, that is not laid. Is that being saved? I think that what the author is trying to say is that if you are saving against getting laid by somebody, is that really being saved because you are not getting laid? You're not having sex. Are you really being saved if you're being saved from having sex? Which is not a great joke. And also, again, consent is important. Yes. (laughs) So important. So important. I will make a statement. Like, do not at your tables. Never. Just don't use seduction mechanics, in my opinion. Like, you could say, you could roll for, like, how good, like, your flirting is, like, if you want to roll performance or charisma or whatever. But don't roll to seduce. I just think the whole thing is inherently problematic, and I can probably write up a whole essay on why I think that is. But this is one of the reasons why, is that everybody, of course, wants to have sex all the time. So why would you even have to save? It's not true. That's not true. And it takes away autonomy. Yeah, Every not everyone is obsessed with sex. Like just just because that is the heteronormative and the what normal culture or like what masculinity sees as oh you you have to think about sex every three seconds or that's what every single guy nowadays thinks of every three seconds is sex. No, that is not what that's not. How do I say this? Choice. Just choice. You need... choice. Somebody needs to make an active choice. Do not leave somebody's choice up to a dice roll. There is more nuance in people than just a blatant statement like that. They are... There Mm -hmm. are aromantics. There are asexuals. There are... You know, 
there's more gender representation than just what people assume to be the norm. Even at this time, because again, we're coming at this from a 21st century perspective, right? So our opinions are very informed in the time that we were born and raised, the time, the times that we have been, you know, subjected to our educations, that stuff. Even in 1976, when this Mm -hmm. was published, people still have and will always have the right to say, no, I don't want this to happen. Always. Always. Like, bar none, end of conversation, you can say no. And if you make it a game mechanic and people are okay with it, you're not hurting anybody, I really can't say anything to that. But if you're doing stuff like this now or if you did it then, just know that it's not cool to do that. You're taking away somebody's autonomy. You're taking away somebody's choice. And that's, again, why I wanted to give the historical context of, like, people were getting autonomy at this time. And a lot of these mechanics that they're introducing are taking away autonomy. And that is a just such a weird juxtaposition. But anyway, we could go on and on. We still have one more spell to get through and like two more notes. But yeah, it's stop it. Get some help. <laughs> Always ask for consent. Yes. Good. Good okay. note. Yes. Good note to end on. Yes. yes. What's the last? You have You have the last spell. What's the last spell you wanted to point out? The last spell is called Horrid Beauty. This can be cast by any witch regardless of their beauty score, but their beauty score will affect how the spell will act, or rather how the person casting the spell will act based on the spell. So if you are a quote-unquote ugly or grotesque witch, or an ordinary witch, it will act differently than if you are a beautiful or gorgeous witch, which the, mm-hmm. there are the specific levels of beauty that they describe there. But TLDR, your outer beauty as the witch performing the spell will make the difference of are you scaring your victim or are you seducing them? <laughs> and if you have a low hit dice, you have no saving throws for being either scared or seduced. So what they're saying is beauty is just on the surface. It's not internal at all, mechanically speaking. Mechanically, if you are beautiful, you automatically are able to seduce someone. And if you are not beautiful, you obviously just scare them when you try to, (laughs) I don't know, it's it's vague. Are you trying to seduce them Mm -hmm. or are you trying to scare them? Because the same... The same thing that you're doing is having two different effects depending on, based on your appearance, your outward appearance. And I, it doesn't make sense to me. No. And it's also, we've said this before, beauty is subjective. And like, they don't even define what beauty means, like, in terms of what a beauty score is. They've defined it as outwardly beautiful. But what does outwardly beautiful mean? You could argue that maybe they left out that description of, oh, a beautiful person has blonde hair and blue eyes, because obviously that'd be very problematic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm glad that they left that out. But also it's just I they're leaving it up to the tables to determine what outward beauty means, which I guess can be, you know, a little benefit of the doubt, okay thing. Mm. But they're also negating that beauty is more than skin deep and you can be a beautiful person and what you define as beautiful can doesn't have to include your appearance but obviously because this is written for women and their interpretation of what women like and that's makeup and mirrors and which are not 
that's not a bad thing. You can totally begin be into looking beautiful and being into all of that traditional feminine beauty stuff. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But they're generalizing again for an entire gender. Yeah. With this crap. Like, if, what if I wanted to be beautiful and I wanted to scare someone? That Like, that's not possible. Yeah. Yeah. Or what if I wanted to seduce someone and I don't have the beauty score for it? That's also not possible. Like, it's so, again, Confined. there's no nuance to it. It's one or the other. Mm-hmm. You're stuck with one. You're stuck with other. There's no, there's no questions. There's no leeway, anything. It's just... Yeah. It is Gygaxian. It is Gygaxian. It is Gygaxian. It's, it's boiling down something that's very nuanced and making it into a game mechanic that's very simple. And in mm-hmm. this case, I would say does not work because it, it's boiling it down to too simple of a mechanic. Yeah. That is problematic from my perspective from this day and age. Yeah. Agreed. And I would claim because if women did not play D&D that was for a reason I would claim that I would claim that history shows that if women didn't like playing D&D they were not doing the right things to include women into playing D&D and whether or not this article proves that I don't know that's just speculation I think it I think it makes a good case for it and I think that we've always theorized that women and minorities were pushed out of D&D early on because the game wasn't made for them. It wasn't made with them in mind. And even decisions that they quote unquote made to try to include them, they didn't consult them. It was their perceptions of what, it was their perceptions of what women want and what minorities want. But we're, again, we can go on and on about this. We're just about out of time, but there are two more points that I want to make to round us out, if that's cool. Are you good with yeah. your rant on horror I'm beauty? Done. Okay. I didn't want to cut you off or anything. Okay. 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 So the one note that I have is my specialty. It's about rhetoric, obviously. I've already talked a little bit about it. But through all these spell descriptions, and we only picked out our favorites. There are a couple of, of other spells in here that we did talk about um, on pages 9 and 10 of the article, if you are curious, if you look through it while you're listening or afterwards. The spell, the the pronouns change when in during the spell descriptions. Anytime that there is a spell description that has to do with the beauty or with seduction or with anything like that, they use she, her pronouns. But there are also spells included in this list that have nothing to do with that that are just kind of randomly put there and I don't know why they're there. And two of those spells that I pointed out was the spell poison and the spell magic mount. And I will compare how they're written very quickly to how Charm Humanoid Monster, which is a spell that Liz already briefly talked about, how that's written. So Charm Humanoid Monster is written like the monster will disarm his victim but will not try to harm slash kill her. If the charmer tries to use her weapons and does not prefer it, she may break the spell and he will try to kill her. Right? So they're assuming Mm -hmm. the player character is a female. Poison is not written with any gender in mind at all. It's just written, the poison is deadly, inflicting three hits per turn, and he will become unconscious at once. The female caster is not mentioned, but the victim is still a him. Weird, but okay, because the other descriptions, specifically with seduction and with charm unite monster, just they specifically state the female caster. But where I 
really noticed that they just started switching out the pronouns and stopped referring to the player character as a woman is with the spell Magic Mount. The magic user, through the use of any long, thin piece of cloth, may summon a wild, a wind horse. He holds the cloth aloft. As the air catches it, a horse will appear. So the caster is suddenly a man. Okay. I have... I have... The article does explicitly say that there are certain spells that only a female caster can do, and there are certain spells like Poison and Magic Bound that both a male and a female caster can do. I figured it had something to do with that, so I'm glad you brought that up. It's just interesting that they... The default pronoun then goes back to man when it's a gender-neutral spell. Yeah. If it's a gender-neutral spell, use gender-neutral pronouns. Use they, them. Use magic caster. Use magic user like you did with poison. Why is magic mount suddenly he, him? Yeah. It's it's just my theory is it's just they were writing – it has to do with the fact that there are male specific – there are female-specific spells and there are spells that everybody can use in this article. And that their version of the default gender when they're writing spells, uh, because they think all players or most of the players are men, they'd have no problems using he, him pronouns. So I just thought it was interesting to point out that even in an article written to attract women, (laughs) they still use he, him pronouns for casters for gender neutral spells. Mm -hmm. Just thought it was interesting. And the last thing I wanted to point out, because we are definitely out of time is we've been talking a couple times about balance and how the writer, who I keep forgetting the name of because that wasn't in my section, so Alyssa, can you repeat the name of who wrote this? Len Lakofka. Len Lakofka. So when Len Lakofka, as Alyssa mentioned in her section, he knew that AD&D was unbalanced. And this was a way, he didn't explicitly say in the article that it was a way to balance things out, but this could be seen as an attempt to balance things. And he knew that things were unbalanced. There is a very small section. It's like a subheading, I think, below the picture Mm -hmm. of the woman in booty shorts. Yeah. On page seven that reads, if the chainmail system, not man to man, is used, the tables are wholly correct. If the alternate combat system is used, subtract one level from all levels over one in every combat. If this is not done, females would fight as well as a man at the same level for far fewer experience points. God forbid. And I was like, my note when I read that was like, oh, they were so close. They were so close to realizing why making like strength caps and why giving why giving the disparities between sexes, genders, however you want to put it, why that's bad mechanically. They were mm-hmm. so close. <laughs> Just make everybody equal and it's balanced. It's not that fucking hard. <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was kind of funny in a retrospective way of just, oh, he wrote out exactly the reason why this is unbalanced and he knew it was unbalanced, but he even had to put a caveat and said, if you do this, women might be able to surpass men. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, as they should be able to, as anyone should be able to surpass anyone because it's a fantasy game, you know? Stop. Stop it. Get some help. And, um, man, oh, we are all riled up. After Dark's going to be great. 
That's about all we have for this section. We left out some stuff because obviously we could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about this article. Um, But these were our main points of contention and also kind of like a summary of what the article's about and like the major things Mm -hmm. that it tried to introduce into D&D. Yeah. Yeah. Let's cool off, get a drink of water, and finish off this episode with our outro and concluding thoughts. Outro slash concluding thoughts. So you've listened to us talk a lengthy bit about this one article that we found in this one magazine (laughs) and read about it for a long time. And we have now come to the conclusion where we have gathered up our thoughts, processed our emotions, and Sharday will start us off with what is the TLDR of the gist of what you think about this article? Uh, well, I will try to keep it concise because I have so many thoughts. So I want to start out by giving him the benefit of the doubt, which... They tried. (laughs) They tried. They tried. They wrote an article with the intent, we assume, to attract more women into playing D&D, but they failed, and that's due to many different reasons, I think. I think this article is an example of why women felt that they were pushed away from the hobby, both mechanically and through this boys' club mentality, because... We didn't really go through article by article about the genders of who wrote every article, but I think we can safely assume it was all, if not mostly, men who were writing these things. And D&D was back then a boys club. All the rules are being written by men. And it is it doesn't seem at all that women were consulted in the very least. Like, hey, what would you like to see in D&D? What would get you to play? I don't know if any women were actually asked. I could be wrong, but that's my impression based on just me with the credential that I am a cis woman. In general, it's just important to remember, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but people are more than just a collection of interests. (laughs) So this attempt was never going to work. They were trying to appeal to the traditional feminine woman And women are so much more. People are so much more than stereotypes. And this article is just jam-packed full of them. Another kind of benefit of the doubt is I can understand why they thought this would work and why they thought like this because of our research into Gary Gygax's generation of gamers and the Gygaxian method of making everything into a game mechanic. You can very clearly trace that through line, especially the Gygaxian method and the beauty mechanic and making things into mechanics that don't necessarily need to be made into mechanics and offending people and using offensive stereotypes to do so. And when compared to what was going on at the time for women, aka women's liberation of the 1970s, This whole article is just weird and almost archaic even in its own time. It was written during a time when women were gaining equality, 
But the article seems to take equalities away. It reinforces the strength cap. It says that women magic users can only be equal to men when they get to 13th level, not from the get-go. It uses terms like wench for a zero-level women woman thief. That's not equality, but women were gaining equality at this time. It's just a very strange, out-of-place article. If you're trying to welcome more groups of people into your game, just try consulting them. <laughs> try consult, try asking, not even just one person, just multiple people what they would like to see. And I also just want to reiterate how eerily relevant this article is today because of the fight for reproductive rights and bodily autonomy, which is happening in the U.S., which is mm -hmm. shocking no one as like why we chose to do it and why we chose to record this nearly a month after the Roe v. Wade ruling was overturned. This article disregards autonomy, just full stop in many different places. It places unnecessary rules on women, takes away their equality, and is just shallow. And it's just a shallow understanding of women, and they don't even give reasons for it. It just doesn't seem like they thought this out at all, and honestly, I wonder if they just thought the whole article was one big joke, and that I don't know. I can't say for sure, but the fact that the entire article, I can't really find one good thing to say about it, and I think we're pretty neutral when we go through certain things on this podcast. I think that says a lot, <laughs> in my opinion, about this article and how awful and my opinion that it is and to end off kind of more positively i guess just a call to action if you happen to like any of these rules and you want to use them at your table that's fine just make sure you have consent <laughs> just make sure you have the consent of everybody involved and that everybody's having fun and try to add more nuance our tables that Liz and I play at are way more loosey-goosey, but that might not be how everybody else likes to play. People might like to play more rules, 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 and that's totally valid. But I just want to encourage people to think about if the rules are fun for everybody or if they're just fun for you and to put yourself in other people's shoes and have communication at your table and make sure that everybody is comfortable using the rules that you want to use at the table, both as a GM and as a player. That's all I got to say about that. That was very eloquent and very coming from a very respectful place. And I admire that. Uh -oh. But uh -oh. my take, <laughs> my take on this is not so friendly and <laughs> eloquent and um, understanding. I may be a little triggered, in fact. <laughs> you say that you at that they tried, and I beg the question, did they? <laughs> Cause in my honest opinion, I see this as a half-assed attempt to include women into D&D, while they bring in the maker's own baggage in which they slot these potential women players into neat little stereotypes and restrict them of being able to play the game 
in what I would see as fair circumstances. It is so problematic, from my opinion, in terms, and from like a modern perspective, in terms of these rules reinforcing not only racism, not only sexism, but ableism and slavery. And the bar was so low, and yet they still completely missed the whole plot. And I recognize my perspective as coming from a modern perspective and that I am an advocate for gender equality. And this kind of gender equality did not exist at the level back then as it does today. The fact that they actually thought, like there is this small sliver of me that considers the fact that did they actually think that they were being inclusive? And if so, they were so far off from actually being inclusive. Like, so far. I fundamentally cannot believe that these cis white men actually thought that women would find this kind of playstyle of D&D fun. From, okay, I recognize that this is me being triggered, maybe. And that that is entirely fair. But I rather think that they were trying to control and limit women in D&D to contain them. But we cannot be contained. Not by cis white men in the 70s and not by any men now. And I think what this article boils down to is this. The writers and makers of this article fundamentally either did not understand women and that's where it all went wrong or they never intended to include women in D&D, and this article was like a filler half-assed attempt to look inclusive during a time when women were so obviously gaining rights in the political, political sphere in the US that they jumped on this bandwagon of, ooh, let's get women to join D&D. Because as we know, Gygax said that women just don't like D&D. They're not interested. He supposedly tried it multiple times to have his daughters to and other women to play in his games, but they just didn't have the interest to play. Or maybe it's, it's both. Maybe they fundamentally did not understand women, and maybe this was a half-assed attempt. Or maybe there's something like a third situation that I, I can't even think of right now, but I just, and, and we'll never know. That's the frustrating thing. This is all just speculation. But I guess to recap, consent is important. If you're trying to be inclusive, actually talk to the people you're trying to include and try to understand where they're coming from and what they would be interested in. That's just... As a designer, if you're making a product for a person, understand the person you're making the product for. Don't do something because it's trendy, just because it's just, it's just worse off for you if you fail. And I, if you like this kind of game, like I assured A said, like there's nothing wrong with this. It's just, it's not my kind of game. And I recognize that. But be inclusive. Make sure you everybody at your table consents to the kind of game that you're playing and make sure that everybody has fun, whatever it is you're doing. And yeah, 
I guess that's all I have to say. It's beautiful. I might cry. (laughs) (laughs) I also really, I didn't think about that. Like it, it was an attempt to look inclusive. I think that's a really interesting point to make. And that could also be a reason why it was written. Yeah. Sorry to end off on a bad note, guys. Uh, listen, we love D&D on this podcast. <laughs> and we're coming from a place of love. And we try to understand these things. We give them the benefit of the doubt. But this is obviously a, a subject that's very near and dear to us. It's a subject that's still very relevant yeah. and which is why we wanted to do this topic. We have a lot of very strong opinions on it. This is probably our most opinionated political episode ever but it's important and if you've been listening us to us in a while none of these opinions should be surprising to you (laughs) honestly to be honest um but we hope you enjoyed we encourage you to read the article for yourself and not just take our word for it it'll be linked in our sources as everything that we have stated will be linked to and our sources can be found at can't be killed creations.com slash sources. And to hear even more up to date relevant rants, follow us on social media because every time something happens that's in our wheelhouse, we try to jump on it and make our opinions known and foster a community of inclusion for everybody who feels comfortable and who also loves D and equal rights and making our hobby our favorite hobby a more inclusive better place that's our goal we read your reviews all the time and the fact that some of you have latched on to that and have told us that your games have changed just means the world to us absolutely and we hope that we can continue doing that and we hope we haven't spooked you off from all the politics i (laughs) Trust me, we're going to try really hard to not make everything so political, but we just, we kind of had to. We just had to. It's our duty as feminists, honestly, to be honest. Um, so please follow us on social media. We are at Slovenly Trolls on both uh, Instagram and Twitter. If you have even more opinions that can't fit in uh, social media word limits, email us at slovenlytrolls at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you would like to throw us a couple of dollars, we have a Patreon where we have bonus content with our sister podcast, Right in the Feels. Uh, we are doing lore rewrites, or I'm doing lore rewrites with the help of the Can't Be Killed Creations crew. We rewrite D&D lore to make it more inclusive and feminist and equal and so far we have done Alistri and uh what the fuck else have we done Alistri, Sune and Loviatar we did three D&D uh goddesses and made them a bit more feminist if you want to check them out they are on our Patreon if not that's totally okay we're just so glad you're listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode and I think that's everything. I think so. Yeah. So don't forget the number one rule of D&D. Don't be a dick. girls. The Slovenly Trolls podcast is part of the Can't Be Killed Creations podcast network. Make sure to check us out at campykilledcreations.com.